Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Revelation chapter 20, the end, chapter 20, 21 and 22. It's the end of the book. It's the really, really good news. And these chapters really go together well. Now, we're going to start with chapter 20. And uh, chapter 20 is one of those uh, chapters in the Bible that many people would think are very, is sort of weird. What is the point of this? And we're going to see that this is all of a setup for chapters 21 and 22. It's a setup that reveals to us God's heart and God's justice, also the human heart, and, uh, and then paves the way for 21 and 22, which is the new heavens and the new earth. It's the best news in the Bible. And it's the reason Jesus died for us. So I'm going to read you a few verses here, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. But uh, Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1, then I saw an angel. So Jesus has returned to earth, okay? And uh, we saw that in Revelation chapter 17 through 19. Now in chapter 20, then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so, you know, lots of Christians haven't really paid attention to this chapter. Many of you have, no doubt. Um, but many uh, not in this church have not paid attention to this chapter. And they would think, what in the world? And then Satan gets released. Jesus comes back. He locks him up and then he releases him. What, what's going on there, right? And why is this important? This seems weird. Um, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray, and let's ask Jesus to speak to us and encourage us through this, these chapters today. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. It's not meant to scare us. It's not meant to be weird. It's meant to encourage us to endure and give us the hope of what's coming in the end. And I just pray today, Jesus, we have people here uh, in every different situation in life. There are some people here who are in the midst of intense trial and struggle. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak a specific word of, en- of encouragement to each of them today and to the rest of us, Lord. Fill us with the hope and love for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. So, what is going on in this chapter? Why? Certainly, it's a little nerve-wracking maybe for some people. One of the, like, this is one of the chapters that, you know, throughout the year as a pastor that I often get questions about as someone in their devotions will be in the book of Revelation. They'll read through chapter 20, and then I'll get a flurry of email questions. Uh, what is going on here? And one of the things that many Christians are scared about when they read this is this whole thing about Satan being released again a thousand years later, and then a whole bunch of people are deceived. Lots and lots of people are deceived. And so many Christians are afraid, like, wait a minute, after Jesus comes back, I thought it wasn't possible for us to sin anymore. And they have this fear, like, is what this is teaching, is this saying that after Jesus returns and we get a resurrected bodies, is it actually going to be possible for us as Christians to sin? And that's a scary thing. And a lot of Christians tie it back to the Garden of Eden and, you know, where Adam and Eve fell. And it's sort of like this fear of like, oh my goodness, uh, maybe we can sin in heaven. And then, I mean, we're doomed. We're never, you know, and all sort of stuff. So 
I'm going to develop a whole bunch of things here, but I'm not going to leave you hanging on that. I want to say this right from the beginning of this message. Absolutely 100%. After Jesus returns, if you are a follower of Jesus, you get your resurrected body. It is impossible. It is impossible. It will be impossible for you to sin or to be deceived ever again. Okay? That will be utterly impossible. That's why we're looking forward to the resurrection. Amen? Sin will be out of the realm of possibility. So if that is a question for you ever, if that is a fear of yours, I just want to tell you categorically, 100%, the Bible is very clear about that, there will be no more sin or death or pain anymore. Okay? So you say then, who are these people? So Jesus returns and, uh, and, you know, obviously we get our resurrect, we get re- the resurrection. We've looked at lots of that before. Jesus returns, we get the resurrection. We're in resurrected bodies. Satan's locked up for a thousand years. But then at the end of this thousand years, he gets released again and a bunch of people are deceived. Okay? So who are these people and why is this period of time happening? And how is this practical to today? What does this show us about God's heart? And uh, I think it shows us some incredibly uh, important things. Um, but let me just start with this. Uh, and I'm going to show you this in Scripture uh, with, a, with a few passages of Scripture after this. But let me just start by saying this. Uh, this thousand-year period that we see described in chapter 20, and I'll, I'll develop this with some Scriptures, and then I'll show you at the end of this message why this is so important. But this thousand-year period after Jesus returns is an in-between period, okay? Uh, lots of Christians have a very uh, overly simplified view, and that's okay, of when Jesus returns. It's just sort of like Jesus comes back, everybody who doesn't believe in him dies, and now we live happily forever after, okay? But here in chapter 20, we see that in the plan of God, there's a little more to it than that. So what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to return, and we are going to be resurrected, and we won't be able to sin anymore, but he doesn't get rid of all the unbelievers who are on the earth, okay? And this is, this is the first challenge to the way we as Christians think about uh, belief and following Jesus. See, you say, well, how could Jesus come back to earth and you have a bunch of unbelievers who now he doesn't kill, but they continue living and then later on they turn against them? How does that even make sense? Because if Jesus is on earth, how could anyone not believe in him? That's how most of us would think. If Jesus is on earth, there's no longer any debate, right? I mean, there's, there's no debate. Now, everybody's a believer because there he is. Obviously, Jesus is real and Jesus is God. And the reason we think that is because we have equated following Jesus with just believing about Jesus, okay? So one part of that is correct. So the part that's correct is, yes, when Jesus comes back to earth, there will be no atheists left. Okay? Because an atheist is someone who believes there is no God. And so when Jesus comes back, clearly, there he is. He came from out of the sky. He makes himself king over the earth. He destroys all the armies who are fighting against Jerusalem. There's Jesus. He's real. Okay? No more atheists. You say, well, then everybody's a Christian. Not quite. See, believing that Jesus exists is not the same as being a Christian. Did you know that? And James chapter 2 teaches this clearly. And this goes to the heart of what it means to actually follow Jesus. I want to show you this. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, James says. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. How many of you think demons are going to, to heaven? Okay? Don't ra- if you raise your hand, okay, you're, just, you're wrong. Okay, we don't, we don't dislike you. Demons are not going to heaven. Demons are not Christians. And yet, 
Is there, an, is there a demon atheist group anywhere in the universe? No. Is there a group of demons somewhere that don't believe God exists? No. Every demon knows that Jesus is real and that Jesus is God. They believe he exists. They just don't want to follow him. They hate him. Okay? We in the West have confused. We think that if a person believes that Jesus exists, then obviously they must be a Christian. And that is actually false. Um, you can believe that Jesus exists and not want to follow him. And that's just the reality of the human heart. That's the reality of the human heart. See, what's the greatest commandment? Does Jesus want us to believe that he exists? Or does he want something else from us? And we find this in Mark chapter 12, right? Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Right? Famous verse. And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, okay? The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall, what? Believe in the Lord? No, you shall love. What does Jesus want? He wants love. He wants a relationship, okay? I mean, the moment I use an analogy of marriage, I mean, it just totally makes sense, right? So LaDonna and I have been married 18 years, okay? And uh, now imagine if you said, okay, like, uh, so, you know, what's the key to your marriage being so strong after 18 years? And I said, well, I believe that she exists. <laughs> well, that's all you have to your marriage? Not, no. I mean, I have to believe she exists in order to love her. So it's a first step. In order to love Jesus, you have to believe he exists, obviously. And so that's, that's part of the apologetic step, you know, as a church and as Christians, we work to show the world that he is real so that then they can get to know him and, and love him. Yes. But if all there is to my marriage with the dawn is I believe she exists. Well, yes, she's a real person. Yes. But the reason we're still married after 18 years is because I intentionally pursue a relationship with her. I make choices to love her. She, she doesn't get up in the morning and say, oh, I, I just because I know she does this every morning. She just gets up and, oh, I'm so thankful to be married to Chris. That's, I, I see her sometimes whispering that to herself in the morning in the bathroom. And, uh, um, but she doesn't say to herself, oh, I just love being married to, to Chris because uh, he believes that I exist. No, no. She loves me because we do things together. We set aside time to be together and talk together and go for walks and go on a date and know each other and listen and all these things, right? So that's what God wants. He doesn't, it's not enough. Believing that he's real is a step, but it is not enough. That's not what he's looking for. Now, of course, you know, love is not all just about emotion. So I, I don't want any of you get to get the wrong impression that if you don't always, you know, feel feelings and emotions of love for Jesus, that you're not loving him. Really what it comes down to is, although we want, we like emotion too. It's great when that catches up. But in the meantime, the thing is to follow him, right? First John chapter five, verse three, this is how we love God. For this is the love of God, what? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We keep his commandments. It's by living a life of pursuing him and loving people. You know how you love Jesus? Have integrity at work, even when it hurts. Keep your promises, even when they hurt. Okay. See, love people, be gentle with people, be honest, tell the truth, admit your sins, don't hide them, 
Work on your stuff. This is how we love Jesus. We do it by following him. And then when we follow him, it's a blessing whenever our emotions catch up with our actions. And there's times when we just feel love for Jesus as well, which is amazing. But that's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for people who are going to follow him, who are going to sacrifice everything and say, we love you, Jesus. We're following you. Not just believe about him. All right? So anyway, when Jesus returns, he's going to return to earth. He's going to destroy all the armies who have come to destroy Israel. We talked a little bit about that in the last couple of weeks, okay? But then he's not just going to, and this is another really important thing because, again, too many Christians have an oversimplified view which does not capture the justice of God. He is not then going to indiscriminately kill everybody who doesn't believe in him, okay? He's going to conquer all those who've taken the mark of the beast and are against Israel and trying to wipe out Christians, yes. But there's going to be many other unbelievers in the world, many of them, widows and orphans and, you know, slaves. There's slaves and women in the sex trade and, and all these kinds of people who are on the earth who maybe don't know about Jesus right now. When he comes back, he's not seeking to destroy those people. So when he comes back, they're not going to be killed. They're going to have a choice whether or not they want to follow him. Now you say, you're talking some weird stuff. Is it actually in the Bible? So let's just look at a couple places. Can we? Shall we? Okay, I'll just show you, and then we'll go back to Revelation. I'm going to show you. So we'll start with Zechariah 14. I've, I've showed you a couple of verses from Zechariah 14 uh, the last couple of weeks, but let's look at Zechariah 14 more in full, okay? And let's see what it says. So it starts out by saying, and then it gets very interesting with regards to Revelation 20 in the last half of the chapter. But anyway, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. So this is, this is how... This is how human history as we know it is going to come to a climax. The nations will gather against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. So just awful, awful, awful. Okay? Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Not just God's going to send help. He is personally going to come and fight for Israel. On that day, his feet, that's Jesus. Of course, Zechariah is in the Old Testament, so he doesn't know the name of Jesus, but, but this is Jesus. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, a real place. Okay, you can go there today. That lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So there's the resurrection. God is coming to deliver Israel and with his saints, with his resurrected saints and angels too, okay? So this is clearly Jesus returning to earth. Let's read another couple of verses, and then you're going to see some, a twist that many Christians don't pay attention to that's all over the prophets. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea. I love it. Living water is going to pour into the Dead Sea. It won't be named the Dead Sea anymore, okay? And half of them to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, it shall... Continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Okay, so this is clearly Jesus back on the earth. He has conquered the enemies of Israel and, and Christians. He is on the earth. He is king over the earth. He's clearly back here. The name of the Lord will be one, right? And then we go to the next verse. Then everyone who survives, okay, so that's interesting. So he's not, he destroys the armies who've come against Jerusalem, but of everyone who survives, of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem. So there's still lots of people on the earth shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, here's the next verse, and I'm going to show you this kind of mixture in between time. 
And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. What? Right? This, this just goes, you know, most, most of us as Christians don't have a, a place for a time period like this where Jesus is actually on the earth and there's people that don't want to go worship him. Right? And this just proves the fact that Jesus is on the earth, everybody, there's no more atheists. They all believe Jesus is real, but it doesn't mean that as a human being, they actually want to follow or love him. So there's actually people that don't want, to, don't want to follow him. Look what it says next, verse 18. And now he specifically calls out Egypt. And if, but there's an if. So if you're an Egyptian here today, there's hope. Pray for your country. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of of booths, all right? So, and I'm going to show you another, we're going to to do some other stuff in just a moment. Uh, I'm going to show you some stuff from Isaiah 65 as well. But my point is, uh, the prophets were clear that there would be a time period where Jesus is on the earth, an in-between time period, where people still have the opportunity whether they want to follow Jesus or not. And again, this is just a total stab against our Western idea that if people just knew Jesus was real, they would automatically all be Christians. The answer is the human heart is not that simple. And it's one thing to know that Jesus is real. It's another thing to want to love and follow him. And what Jesus is looking for is people who want to love and follow him. Now, so during this thousand-year period, though, we have this mixture. People who are still choosing not to follow or worship Jesus, okay, while he's king on the earth, and he allows them to be alive, although he disciplines the nations that don't do it, But at the same time, we've got resurrected believers reigning on the earth. And we see this in Revelation 20. So let me go back. I'm just going to show you this. There's this mixture, this in-between time period where Jesus, this thousand years, where you have this mixture. You've got Jesus on the earth already, and things are getting a lot better, but they're not perfect yet. And you still have sinners on the earth, but you also have resurrected believers on the earth. So we see this in Revelation 20, verse 4. Right after Satan gets locked up, John says this, Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. So, talking about believers who resisted, said, there's no way, we're not compromising, we're not going to worship the beast, all this sort of stuff, and had not received its mark on their foreheads, on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, Uh, And of course, there's many other passages like this that we know believers are going to reign over the earth, okay? Now, um, uh, the interesting thing is, who are we reigning over? Well, it makes sense when you start to see this, that there's still nations on the earth that haven't given their lives to Christ, okay? So resurrected believers are on the earth. It says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, all right? So um, now, what is this period of time like? And again, I'm going to get to the why, because the point is not for us to know all kinds of details. I don't care if you remember all the details. You can always go back to Revelation 20 and figure out the details. The point is there's an in-between period of time. I just have to nail some of the details down so we can look at the why. Why would God do this? Because there's something really important about his heart and about the human heart that we have to understand so we can understand judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? But what is this time period going to be like? Well, first of all, Obviously, things are going to be better on the earth during this in-between period of time than they are right now, although they won't be perfect. And the reason they're going to be better is because uh, two things. First of all, I mean, Jesus is king on the earth. 
So that right there, things are better. I mean, I, you just look at the way governments run and the things they do now. There won't be a democracy when Jesus is here. By the way, I love democracy. It, as If the alternative is, you know, if Jesus isn't on the earth ruling, then the best thing we as human beings have is democracy because at least then we don't have tyranny. I prefer democracy to tyranny. But how many of you know, and we live here in Canada, how many of us know democracy is not perfect? Absolutely. Isn't that true? It's not perfect. Okay, there's lots of problems with, with democracy, but it's better than that. When Jesus is back, there's no democracy. He's in charge. Things are going to work a lot better. But not only are things going to work a lot better, Satan is locked up, right? If we go back to verses 1 to 3 of, of Revelation 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottom of pit in a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, right? So that's back to those first couple of verses of Revelation 20, and threw him into the pit and uh, said he cannot deceive the nations any longer. So not only is Jesus in charge, but Satan is locked up. Now that's going to have a huge impact on life on the earth, because remember what Paul says in Ephesians 6 is, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers, against the principalities, against the dark forces of evil in the spiritual realms, right? That's what Ephesians 6 says. In other words, lots of the terrible things that we see going on in the news today are inspired by Satan. War, you know, you look at how big the porn industry has got, terrorism, uh, sex slavery, all kinds of these terrible things. It's not just people, there's spiritual forces of darkness that are, that are creating these strongholds. During the thousand years, not only will Jesus be in charge, but Satan will be locked up. You won't have any of that stuff. And so life on earth will be greatly improved. Now, I want to just read you one more chapter out of the prophets. We're going to go to Isaiah 65, all right? So Isaiah 65, I'm going to first show you a, uh, a famous verse. You can see it up there already. Um, most of us have heard this verse. It's a very famous prophetic verse in the Old Testament. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is clearly uh, Jesus is on the earth prophecy, yes? I mean, this does not happen before Jesus returns, okay? Um, the wolf and the lamb are not going to eat together, and neither will the lion or the ox, okay? This is clearly Jesus come back to earth. Okay, I'll go back a few verses earlier and I'll show you this. Okay, if we go back to verse 17, it says this, um, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Okay, so this is Jesus back on the earth. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. There won't be any more crying or distress in the city of Jerusalem. That's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. Okay? So you say, okay, I'm with you. This is clearly a prophecy about when Jesus is back. Look what the next verse says. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, this is all in this passage when Jesus is back on the earth and you go, what? There's still people dying? Yes. There's still people sinning? Yes. But it's not believers. We're in resurrected bodies. There's still, there's this mixture, this in-between period. Jesus is on the earth, but you have people still choosing to sin and choosing to die. But I want you to notice how much better things are. How much better things are. Look at it. It says during this time period that anyone who dies at 100 years old will be considered young. So things have vastly improved, okay? Um, 
I don't know about you guys, but I've never personally known anyone to make it to 100 years old. I have heard of people, obviously. I mean, you read the Guinness Book of Records, there's people that make it to like 120. I've heard of people here in town making it to like 103. Okay, and I've known people in this church that gave it their best shot and got close, but didn't quite make it, okay? Personally, I don't even want to get close, okay? I mean, we all have goals, right? Uh, I, well, anyway, I don't need to set a date for myself or anything, but I just... <laughs> Hundreds too long in, in this body, in this earth, okay? But anyway, I think. But not at no, ins- oh, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Okay, just leave it. But if you're getting close to 100 and you want to live to 100, great, good for you. But anyway, the young man shall die 100 years old. So things are way better. Things are way better, okay? And yet people still die in our city. Why? There is still the nations. The unbelieving nations are still on the earth. Many of them will no doubt give their lives to Christ, the ones with, the, with good hearts, but not everybody will, okay? And so they're still on the earth, but things are going to be better because Jesus is in charge and Satan is locked up. Now, the question is, now we get to the why. Why, why, why would God have such a weird in-between period of time? Why would he put it into the Bible? Why would this be important for us to know? And I think the answer is because God is revealing the true hearts, okay, of all those who reject him. And this is where I really want to lay to rest some of our Christian misconceptions about the justice of God. I think too many of us have this idea that there are going to be people who are cast into hell who are like, oh, I just never heard about Jesus. And God says, well, too bad, and cast them into hell. I think some of us have misconceptions about hell. We actually think that God is going to cast people into hell who are... When they stand before Jesus, they'll just be like, oh, I wish I would have received you into my life. I made a big mistake. And he'll say, well, too bad you didn't, and cast them into hell. And I want to tell you today that I believe very strongly that there are no people like that who are being cast into hell. That the only people being cast into hell are people who have had as much revelation of Jesus as they can get, and still say no to him anyway. And the reason I believe that so strongly is because I think this is a big theme in Revelation from chapter 15 to chapter 20. Remember last week when we talked about chap- in chapter 15 and 16, what was, the co- what was the theme of chapter 16 over and over and over again? Jesus would send judgments on the earth, and what would the people do? What does it say over and over again? They did not repent. Over and over again. It's not... the, The whole picture of Revelation is of a God who is sending judgments, who is sending prophets, who his his people, the church is is being witness on the earth, and the people over and over and over again we see in Revelation, they did not repent. They did not repent. They did not repent. That is the picture Revelation gives us of the unbelievers that God is going to judge. And now in Revelation 20, we get the cherry on the top. What's the cherry on the top? is God actually sets aside a thousand-year period, and personally, Jesus comes to earth and reigns on earth. He even locks Satan up. So Satan can't even deceive the nations. And now he is personally on earth, and everybody on earth gets to experience the benefits of Jesus being on the earth. They live longer. Life is better. There's no sex trade. There's no porn industry. Life is way better. And then at the end of the thousand years, God lets Satan go and you say, well, at the end of that thousand years, nobody in their right mind 
would choose to reject Jesus. And look what the nations do. Here's what they do. Verse somewhere or another, seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And here you're thinking, there's no way. Nobody's going to go for this. You can see Jesus. He's real. He's amazing. Life is amazing. And look what happens. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Millions upon millions upon millions of people, after experiencing all the benefits of who Jesus is and knowing that he's real, are going to say, I still don't want to submit to him, I don't want to follow him, and I don't want to love him. And then it says this, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth, they will actually come to fight against Jesus and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, you say, well, this is just referring to people who are alive in, in the, at the very end of time. But I actually believe that what Revelation, now I, and I can't prove this one scripturally, but I'm going to tell you, I believe it strongly. I just, this is such a big theme in the book of Revelation. I believe what Revelation is revealing to us is the hearts of all of those who reject Jesus. And I believe because God is both just and good, I believe every person at some point, whether it's in this life or whether it's on their deathbed or whatever it is, whether he sends them, a, miraculously sends them a missionary to reach them or whether he gives them dreams and visions. There's many stories now of, for example, people in the Muslim world where missionaries can't go in some of those places where Jesus is meeting people in, in visions and dreams and revealing himself that way. I believe that God has many ways of doing it, whether he reveals himself to someone on their deathbed or whatever it is. I believe what we see here in Revelation, what do we see in Revelation is we see a picture of a God who gives people barely any chances or tons of chances. We see a picture of a God who gives chance after chance after chance after chance, including putting his son on the earth physically so that nobody can deny he's real and still people reject him. I believe that same God we see at work in Revelation is a God who gives that kind of chance to every human being and would not cast anyone into hell who didn't have every opportunity to receive him. Amen. And that's why I believe strongly, and the reason I think this is so important is because it affects our picture of God. I think too many Christians, we have these places in our heads and we think he's sending people to hell who it doesn't make sense why they would be in hell. And I want to just, I want to assure you I think the picture we get here in Revelation is that the only people God would cast into hell are people who have had every single opportunity and actually still say, I don't want Jesus. And they'll never want him. Does that make sense? And I think that's huge. Because after this comes judgment. And then we're going to get to the fun stuff, the new heavens and new earth. Then I saw a great white throne. So this is now, you know, here we are today. You've got the, the human history, the human age as we know it. Jesus is going to come back. That's going to be amazing. All of us are going to get our resurrected bodies who are followers of Jesus. And we're going to be with Jesus for this thousand-year in-between period. And at the end of the thousand-year period, we have Judgment Day. Okay? A great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Everybody, every human being, whether you believe in Jesus or not, every human being who has ever lived is going to have to stand before God on judgment day. 
every one of us has an appointment one-on-one with God. You can't escape it, but you will stand before God and you will give an account of your life. Now, you know what the beautiful thing is? If you're a follower of Jesus, what does God say to you when he looks at all the deeds from your life? Forgiven. Isn't that amazing? You're going to stand before God and because we've all messed up so many times, you're going to stand before God. We all have an appointment on judgment day. We're all going to stand before God. Every single person who's ever lived, we're going to stand before God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've sinned many, many times because we all have and you've screwed up and God's going to look at you with a smile on his face and he's going to say, forgiven, your name is written in the book of life. Come on in, son, and da- son or daughter. Now, he may at that time still have a conversation with you And it might be stern for some believers who lived very selfish or worldly lives for the most, and and just really didn't seek after him. And you may say, son or daughter, you, you wasted your lifetime in large part. You're forgiven, but there might be a painful conversation there, but you are forgiven. That's the beauty. You've, you've made Jesus your Lord and savior. You are forgiven. That's awesome. But everyone who has not received Jesus He's going to stand before God. And I want you to notice again, I've been telling you this. This is true throughout Revelation. He is just. You do not, you pay for exactly what you did according to the deeds, right? According to what they had done. So a Hitler certainly will get punished worse by God than, you know, uh, someone who did not live that wickedly. But the only people who are getting judged like that are people who have had chance after chance after chance after chance and have looked at Jesus and said, I don't want any part of you. That's, the, that's what we see in Revelation. Okay? Super important. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you look at this and you go, what? How are death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire? Like, I mean, death isn't a thing. I can't, you can't pick up death. It's not a thing you can pick up and throw it into something. Hades is just the the New Testament it's the Greek word for the place of the dead. You can't, Hades isn't something you can pick up and throw into the lake of fire anyway, either. So you say, what's going on here with death and Hades being thrown in the lake of fire? I'll tell you what's going on. This is picture language, obviously. This is picture language. Death and Hades are not actual entities that can be burned or thrown into something. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. What's happening is picture language. What? This is the end of death and Hades. You know what judgment day is? Judgment day is closure. Judgment day is closure. We've had all of human history and all the sin and pain and hurt and wickedness. Then we have this little thousand year in between period where things are a lot less bad, but there's still sinners on the earth. And now we have judgment day and this is closure. Everything now, there is no more death. There is no more pain. There is no more evil. There is no more sin. These things are not even possible in the new heavens and new earth. You have 
closure. And from now on, what you have is none of that stuff. And that's why we read the very next sentence. Now, I know in your Bible it says chapter 21, but remember the original didn't have chapters. The very next sentence after this, judgment day is closure. Every human being has an appointment with God. And then God says, now no more. Death and Hades are gone. And wickedness is gone. And there's no more wicked people on the earth. And now look at this, the very next thing. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven. See, closure. The old is gone. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, a, 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 a new city. Now, again, remember, this is a physical place. In the, the first people, the first century Christians who are hearing this, this message they're comparing this to Rome. Rome is the most powerful city in the world at that time. And it's the biggest city. It's got the most amazing stuff. And it's filled with filth and wickedness and every vile, disgusting thing. Now we get a new city, brand new. And there's nothing dirty or bad in it. There's no, there's no gang violence. There's no home in this city where anyone's ever been murdered or abused there's no places to buy drugs. There's no places where people have been hurt or objectified. None of that. You get a brand new city. Capital of the world, the New Jerusalem. It's a physical place. It's coming down to earth. We are not going to be floating around playing harps. We are going to be real physical people living in a real physical world, a world without pain or death or sorrow. And look at this, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what the whole Bible has been building to. This is why God created us human beings. This is the whole reason why he created us right here. He wants to live with us. The dwelling place of God is with man. This is why he made you. He wants to live with us as a gigantic, big, happy family. And, you know, sometimes we say these things, and I think they go over our heads, because, yeah, 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 heaven, God's coming, blah, blah, blah. Um, sometimes you just have to bring it into, like, real human terms, everyday terms. So I don't know how many of you have traditions like this, but we have a tradition in our family, right around Christmas time, we have a big sleepover in the basement. I don't know how many of you do that, okay? And so we pull a bunch of mattresses all together, the way our couches are set up, and we all squish together in there, and we watch a movie together, and then we have a sleepover that night together. And, and the kids absolutely love it, right? I mean, the kids always love those things a little more than the parents. I sometimes get asked throughout the year, hey, let's do a sleepover. No, no, let's just wait till Christmas. But anyway, um, but the kids love it, right? Because it's, it, but it's super fun. Why do they love that? The whole family squished together on mattresses on the floor, watch a movie, and then, and then have an overnight sleepover together. Why do they love that? Because there's something in our human DNA that loves to be together. Isn't that true? It's like at the core of our being. I mean, as soon as I even share that our family has a little tradition like that, I can see everybody kind of just smile. And there's, because we all get this feeling like, oh, that, it's cute, right? <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that with anything else. We don't do that with, you know, if someone would get up here and talk about, I just want to make millions of dollars and store it up in a vault and buy a really big house. And we all go, oh, okay. That doesn't make us go, oh, millions of dollars. Oh, big homes, amazing. Don't do that. 
Because in your human DNA, I mean, we might want millions of dollars. There might be a part of us, but it's not like, oh, I want that. It's more like, ah, you know, it's like a greed thing, right? (laughs) But the reason we go, oh, I just, I love that, is because there's a part of our human DNA that wants to connect like that, that wants to be together, that doesn't want to be alone. Now, why, where would we all have gotten that? I'll tell you, you don't get that from evolution. Survival of the fittest doesn't give you that feeling. How would we as human beings have all gotten this DNA that, I still want to be alone. I just want to be together. And the answer is because that's God's heart. That's what he wants. Now, I mean, obviously an analogy is always imperfect. Like, I don't want to trivialize it. But when you say the dwelling place of God is with man, it's like that Christmas sleepover. God wants to have a big sleepover on earth with the human race. And you'll never be alone ever again. And you'll never feel depressed or anxious or like you have to perform or impress anyone ever again. You will just be loved. The dwelling place of God is with man. It's going to be the greatest thing that ever happened. It's going to be amazing. And then it says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not the happy ones. I always have people ask me, so we're not going to be able to cry for joy? That is not the point. (laughs) No more sad crying. I mean, I think I'm going to be a blubbering mess. Whenever I'm super happy, when Jesus is doing something, I always end up crying. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of us, oh, Jesus, this is so amazing. And we'll be blubbering, but it'll be the happiest blubbering we ever did, okay? But he's going to wipe all the sad tears. And look at this, and death shall be what? No more. Judgment day is closure. There's no more death. You can't even find it in the universe. It's gone. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. That, that was before judgment day. This is eternity after. No more hospitals. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we have hospitals now. We need hospitals now. But aren't you looking forward to a day when we don't need hospitals? No more hospitals, no more funerals, no more chemo, no more pills, no more broken marriages, no more just busted up, no more mental illness, no more depression, no more anxiety. Oh, can you imagine never having to feel anxious or stressed again? Because all of those were before. Judgment day is closure. Those things happened, now they're gone. It's a new thing. It's a brand new thing. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things are new. Your body will be made new. Your mind will be made new. Your family will be made new. Everything will be made new. And he said to me, It is done. The bad stuff is done. The good stuff is just beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And for those of you who are ladies here, and you will be his daughter. That's just what he wants. He wants to come to earth and have his sons and his daughters cuddled up to him. And we're going to live an amazing eternity with having adventures with him, and exploring with him, and eating with him, and worshiping him. It's going to be absolutely amazing. You say, how does that apply to me today? Oh, it has everything with how you live today. Because this is the hope 
The reason, I've been telling you, the whole book of Revelation is not supposed to scare us. It's supposed to encourage us. This is the hope that gets us through all the junk so that we don't give up. This is the thing. This is the thing that makes it all worth it. When a person goes through a surgery, surgery is painful. Why would you let a doctor do painful things to you? Because of the hope that afterwards you're going to be better. Why would you endure through the tough things you have to endure through today? Because that's life. Life here on earth is tough. Jesus, Jesus promised us that. He said, in this world, you will have many what? Troubles. You will. We'll have different ones, but we'll all have many troubles. Troubles in family sometimes. Troubles in marriage sometimes. Troubles with health. Troubles with anxiety. Troubles with depression. All kinds of troubles. Stress. Don't be surprised. The Bible, the Bible tells us that. Don't be surprised when life is hard. We get surprised when life gets hard, and then we get bitter. Oh, this shouldn't have happened to me. Wait, you're a human being living life. Bad things happen. So you say, well, how do I get through these tough things? I'll tell you how you get through. Is you set your mind and you set your heart on what is to come. He's going to deliver us. You're going to make it through. You might be here today and you might think, I'm not going to make it through this time. You are going to make it through. You are actually going to get through this. And so your only thing, this is what, this is your responsibility. When it comes to what's my responsibility when hard things happen, I'll tell you what your responsibility is. Just do the right thing. Do the right thing and trust Jesus. What am I supposed to do? You say, my marriage is breaking apart. What do I do? First of all, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to live. Do the right thing and trust God. And someday he's going to fix it all. Do the right thing and trust God. Do the right thing and trust God. Hang on to Jesus in the midst of it all. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, help us to hang on to you in our pain. Help us to hang on to you in our pain. Jesus, we look forward to the day when you're going to make all things new. We are really looking forward to that. We are tired of funerals. We are tired of sickness. We are tired of brokenness. Lord Jesus, I, just, I want to just speak. There are people here in this room today who are in the midst of things, they don't know how they're going to make it through. They're going to make it through. And the only thing you're asking them to do in a moment is to do the right thing and trust you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. We pray that you would come quickly. We look forward to the day when you will come and live with us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.